Oh dear, those are trolls over there. I better go. I don't want those poor ponies to get eaten by those foul creatures. Here I go, sneaking in. Oh, oh, I'm feeling mighty hungry. Do you have any ideas on what we're going to have for supper? You know, I was just thinking the same thing. You know what I haven't had in a while that I really love? A nice Black Forest Gow. Oh, the Black Forest Gow. I don't think I've seen that since the Great Goblin Baking Show. Oh, yeah, that was that was real tasty looking, that was. Oh, these beings. They smell so foul and... I don't understand what they're talking about. If it wasn't for the poor working conditions out here, we could probably afford to buy some real food instead of having to scavenge and eat just whatever we can find. That's right. It's odd being a folk that gotta live off the blessings of these woods. But you know they're on the up and up. Oi, ever since them humans left, things have been looking up a bit, I suppose. That's actually really true. I even saw them big spiders returning back to their natural habitats. Oh, it's nice to see nature healing like that. Oh, here I go. I'm opening up the ponies. Enclosure. No. No, no. Stop. No, no. No noise. What do we have here? Would you look at this? Oh, God. What you got going on there, little one? Trying to take our dinner like that? (laughs) Hey, now, hold on. We was about to have ourselves some supper. Don't you want to join us for the meal? Please let me go. No, I can't believe I'm going to be eaten by dumb Filthy trolls! This is terrible! Now hold on just one minute. I'll have you know that I was educated in one of the most prestigious universities in all of Middle Earth, and I don't really appreciate you calling us dumb trolls. Huh? Yeah, just because you see a couple of blokes trying to live off the land, you assumes we aren't educated. Well, you're still filthy and you smell disgusting. That's discrimination, that is. You've just been brainwashed by the marketing systems that makes you believe what you need to be holding up to a certain beauty standard. That's right. You know, there are all sorts of manners of beings in this world, and we each have our different sense and our different styles of beauty, our different standards. Yeah, but I'm a sentient being, and you're still going to eat me. Yeah, I mean, that's true. We are going to eat you. Yeah, no odd feelings, though. Just business. Oh, God. Simple economics, that is. Supply and demand. (laughs) Why is Gandalf never around when you need him? What, that wizard bloke? We ate him yesterday. Oh, fuck.
Fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mulkel. My pronouns are he and him, and I'm here with my epic co-hosts. Hi, people. People out there listening to us. My name is Cassidy. Or AI's listening <clears throat> to us. Oh, yeah. My pronouns are they, them, and today... I am a sick hobbit. Oh, no. no. So as opposed to the usual thing yeah. that you are, which is just a hobbit. Yeah. Right. But you're also sick. <laughs> uh, thanks, man. <laughs> but also, I I have the flu. But we're still recording, because that's how dedicated we are. That's right. But uh, yeah, normally I am just a hobbit. Just a run-of-the-mill hobbit. You know, not not in any bog of those... standard hobbit. <laughs> Shire standard, I guess. Yeah, I don't even go to a bog. That's how normal I am. I just like being in my hole, eating 10 square meals a day, you know? I keep it light. I don't go crazy. Living the life. Yeah. Sometimes I garden. I don't have rent. I can just live... What fantasy world is this? I live off the land. Everything I need is just on the ground, you know? Or in the water, I go get it, and um, I have everything I need. Sounds I have great. my home. <laughs> you built with your own two feet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My furry feet. But hey, who are you? <laughs> That's right. That is some good slice of life energy right there. Yeah. You don't got to worry about a thing other than recovering from an illness. Yeah, you know, uh, I just kind of like waited out. That makes sense. <laughs> Just let the uh, the wizards take their course. Mm -hmm. uh, there's gods in this world, I guess. That makes sense. That makes sense. There are. But who am I, you asked? We did. I'm Jack Olander. My pronouns are any and all. And uh, I, am a, uh, I am an angel-like being come to Earth in the form of a wizard. Okay. Do you have bird shit on your head? <laughs> yes, and it actually formed a super magical mold that crept into my brain. Well, that explains the wizard thing, man. Yes. So are you high all the time, or is it like you actually can do magic? Oh, uh, well, both. Oh, nice. Uh, now, now, I have, um, now I create magical herb. Because of the uh, the nature powers that I have oh. developed from the mold. Oh, nice. Gandalf yes. loves Jack. <laughs> yes. All the wizards come for the magic herb. Yeah, they can't even go one day without it. True. No. No, no, no. Not at all. <laughs> well, guys, it's 2023. It's January. And you know what that means? Yeah, holy shit, man. Holy shit, it's time for some more Tolkien. Yeah. Not token. I forgot. <laughs> no, we're not tokers. No, even though Jack's got the magic herb. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. Why are we doing this to ourselves? Well, it seems like it's become a tradition at Castle Satire to talk about Tolkien in January. So here we are. Talking about the fourth movie in Peter Jackson's mostly legendary, half-legendary film series. 
Yeah, I noticed that over the last three years of our show, we did a Lord of the Rings movie. Great movies. Uh, in January. So I was like, why don't we continue the Tolkien tradition and start with the Hobbit movies? You were like, Jamie suffered enough last week when we did Cats. This couldn't possibly be that bad, right? I think it's not, but... It might get worse as the years go on. <laughs> Just ask a New Zealand filmmaker what they think about this movie. Oh, God. Just wait until three more years from now when we do Rings of Power for the new year. Yeah, And people exactly. are like, isn't that show like four years old at this point? And we're going to be like, aha, uh -huh, the four rings. And you're like, nah, it's not how it is. <laughs> There's more than that. A Amazon said they were doing five seasons of it. Oh, my God. Wow. Also, I hope I mean, they have good ideas for that many seasons. Anyways, we're going to do the animated Hobbit movie <laughs> in four years or whatever. Fair enough. But hey, before we talk too much about the film, let's cover some quick technical details. This movie was released in 2012. It was directed by Peter Jackson, acclaimed director of, let me check my notes, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. 2012 is when the apocalypse happened. Right. Everything since then has just been a fever dream for all, or a, not even a fever dream. It has been like the last uh, moments of our existences in 2012 as the rapture was taking place. It's just been a really long dream. I thought this was just the sequel to the first universe, but they didn't really have any good new ideas. So it was pretty much just starting where it left off. Makes <laughs> sense to me. That's why, uh, you know, the 20s are back. Yeah. Including the uh, the massive flu epidemic. Right. And very similar economic, like, standing. Yeah. So. That means we're in for a Great Depression coming up soon. Man, my depression has been great for years. <laughs> Except in the future, we're going to, instead of the Red Scare, we're going to call it, like, the Great, and not Depression, but the Great Anxiety. And we're going to yeah. just move from there. <laughs> True. <laughs> so, uh, much like the first series, this film stars Sir Ian McKellen as the acclaimed wizard Gandalf. It also features Martin Freeman in the titular role. That's right. And Sir Ian McKellen is a Swords and Satire alumni, not just as Gandalf, but as Asparagus from Cats 2019. It's true. And now God I can I can never unknow that now. If you do enough, like, head trauma, you might be able to. Oh, my God. Well, when we were watching the movie, that's all I could think about. But... Head trauma? Asparagus. Oh, God. I'm so sorry. I had thankfully, mercifully, <laughs> I think, slept through most of Asparagus' scenes in <laughs> Cats. That worked out well for me. But uh, who else is in the movie? Uh, Richard Armitage. Ah. Who plays Thorin Oakenshield, a dwarf who is probably more like Aragorn than he should be. I was going to say, you mean the dwarven Aragorn? <laughs> Dwaragorn. Dwaragorn. I am here for that. <laughs> That's badass. That sounds like a dwarven name. It does. Dwaragorn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's also, like, 12 other dwar uh, actors who play dwarves, including Graham McTavish. Yeah. Uh, John Kalen, New Zealand actor, uh, wonderful-seeming gent. Uh, mm. And 
10 more whose names I can't think of off the top of my head. Yeah, that's fine. They're all great. Yeah. And this, this, the actor who plays Thorin, another alumni. He is from, of course, one of our favorite shows. Castlevania. (laughs) Of course. He's the voice of Alucard. No, Trevor. That's right. (laughs) No, Alucard is from Warrior Nun. Uh, Alucard (laughs) is from uh, Battlestar Galactica. Oh, nice. But hey, enough faffing about. Why don't we (laughs) summarize this bad boy, this film? Okay, so we have an adventure movie about a group of men who walk together to go take back their ancestral home. I was going to say, the first part I've seen this movie was called The Lord of the Rings. (laughs) I've seen three of this movie. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, they kind of like, you know, copied it. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. One of these people is a hobbit. And the rest are dwarves. Oh, yeah, there's also a wizard. I was going to say, there's at least one wizard, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, they they run into some elves. Oh, there's goblins and orcs in their way. That's right. Who are totally fine, uh, you know, traveling long distances in daylight. Yeah. <laughs> a point that Gandalf makes a big deal about in the Fellowship of the Ring, I think. And makes no big deal about it after seeing it here in The Hobbit. Oh, they mention it in this movie. It just doesn't come up. Ah. So they don't quite make it to the the, the mountain that was their home in this film. Erebor. They are saved from falling off of a cliff after a fight with orcs by some huge eagles, which Gandalf called by uh, whispering to a moth. You know how you call eagles to get a ride? Yeah. Oh, and Bilbo found a magic ring. He stole it from a crazy old hermit living in the mountain. This is the most accurate summary of The Hobbit I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, yeah. And um, there's a thing, a guy called the Necromancer, who supposedly the orcs are working for. Uh, and... All the elves and the wizards are kind of, like, trying to figure out what to do about that guy. Now, Cass, I'm hurt that you would forget to mention Radagast the Brown. Well, see, they find out about this problem from Radagast. That's right. And, um, he's probably the best of them. Yes. (laughs) He's pretty cool, other than the bird poop. He's my favorite. We're going to talk about him. All right. It's uh, a deal. I think that's about it for this movie. You yeah. know the rest. Yeah. It's like one third of a kid's book with a bunch of extra padding thrown in to make you go like, remember in Lord of the Rings when they do this? I am shocked that your summary has effectively in three minutes captured a three hour movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's because it's like a hundred pages of a kid's book. Yes. Yeah, but I think it works. All right, well, then let's just get right into it as we move into the delve. 
Welcome to the Delve, where we explore the themes, scenes, and lore of The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. So guys, let's talk about how this movie destroyed the New Zealand film industry, labor laws. Oh shit, we're just like starting right in with that. Well, here's the thing. We all know from years of doing the show that every fantasy movie is about class struggle. And this movie is so meta that it made the class struggle part of the actual production of the film. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> so when they were getting ready to make this movie, the New Zealand actors and stuff were like, hey, we have no rights. We have no union. We have no collective bargaining. We don't like that. We would like to have a living wage and like protections and stuff like a lot of people in other film industries do. So we're going to try to, like, unionize and do all this stuff. And the government of New Zealand was like, actually, fuck you. We're going to make a bunch of shady dealings with Warner Brothers and effectively strip New Zealand actors of all their rights. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, a bad, it's a bad thing. It was a bad thing. This movie should have never been made. Yeah. By the point this was happening, they were protesting starting the film until they were able to... Uh, try to work out a deal where they could have more rights and better pay, better hours, better working conditions. They already had like a an organization like a union at that point. But it wasn't uh it didn't have a lot of political power. No teeth. Yeah. You need a union with teeth. Sharp teeth that can rend into the flesh of executives. I guess you know all about that now that you're a teacher. I'm a union man. Means I'm more than a hero. <laughs> Miles O'Brien said it. Yeah. It's sad. It's like Mordor won <laughs> in real life. Yeah, no, uh, no matter what happens in the <clears throat> films, we know that the forces of darkness actually triumphed. Yeah. Yeah. This is capitalism at its, you know, at its finest. That's right. Peak capitalism. This yeah. is capitalism showing its best foot. <laughs> Putting its best foot forward. <laughs> Damn. It's true. There are a lot of movies made in New Zealand because production companies are, are studios will work there because they can There's do no so uh, more cheaply because they can. it's easier for them to exploit people there. And um, People there were like, hey, we have the internet. We know what other people make <laughs> somewhere else. Right. And we know that you're paying us exploitative wages. Yeah. And of course, the media spun the whole thing to benefit the studios and to hurt the actors and to make them seem greedy. And even Peter Jackson came out and was like, saying some pretty gnarly stuff in an interview about how, like, oh, these are just the union actors wanting to have a bit of fun or whatever. I know. I thought that was disgusting. Made me sick. Yeah, it reminds me of that. What is that saying? The greatest crimes come from a desire for excess, not a desire for, like, the, like, bare minimum. I have not heard that, but uh, I think that that is definitely capitalism writ large in a lot yeah. of ways. Because these actors are asking to unionize so that they can get a fair living standard. 
Yeah. Yeah. They were making like half of what like set designers were making. I'll tell you who does not need that money. A fucking CEO of a massive multi-million dollar company. Exactly. Yeah, let's, let's talk about how Harvey Weinstein gets residuals from this film. Oh, maybe we shouldn't talk about that because I mm. don't want to throw up. Yeah, it was just on the first movie. But True yeah, movie. he backed it. So he was getting like the royalties of the income. Oh, and that's another thing. The New Zealand actors don't get or at least at the time of the making of this film, didn't get residuals on the movie like actors from other countries do. Yeah. Ridiculous. I think that's been changed now, but they don't go back. (laughs) And here's the thing, uh, I suppose, about the focus of where the money in the film is going. Yes. The, the, The actors are not being greedy in wanting to live comfortable, like, lives of dignity. They're putting work in, and they just want to be able to live a respectable life with it, right? You're absolutely right, Jack. Um, That is something one of the actors was saying in an interview, actually, is, like, human dignity matters, and our work deserves to be paid a fair wage, you know? Yeah, and I don't see why when the workers at the bottom ask for more money, people are like, whoa, why are why are those actors asking for more? When the CEO doesn't give it to them because they want more money, people are like, Yeah, good on you. Yep. I don't know I don't know how many people actually react that way, to be fair. I know Too many. I don't know many people that do react that way. I feel like a lot of people share our opinions on this. But the fact that it got spun that way means that there are people who are in corroboration, like with these behaviors. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely, because they're able, the studios are able to use the news media to spin things to their advantage. Yeah. Well, I guess to bring it thematically back into the movie, right? The actors were just looking to live, like, a a dignified life where the skill they put out is rewarded, right? And uh, not in excess, but just enough to live a comfortable life. They're contributing, and I think that's fair. They are not greedily asking for money. That's right. However, you, you know what has an insatiable greed for more, even at the top of the ladder? Uh-oh. Dwarven kings and dragons. It seems to be true. Yeah. So thematically, looking at this movie, it's perfectly reflected in the production. That's true. Now, real quick, I just want to say, for anybody who's interested in the story of the labor strike and everything that went into the making of this movie, you should check out Lindsay Ellis' video on YouTube, or three video series on these films, after you've listened to the rest of our episode, of course. Yeah. Yeah, don't watch the movies, just watch that. Yeah, but Jack, you were talking about Dwarven Kings and Dragons. That's right. When we hop into this setting, we are shown the dwarves right out the gate. That's right. Beautiful hirsute, I guess short, but seemingly of just fairly average height, it seems like, (laughs) based on the way they're shot in this movie. I mean, they're around four feet tall, right? So they're stout compared to, like, Gandalf, who is, like, tall. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, the dwarves, looking at them culturally, they are what fantasy fans think of as dwarves, right? They live under a mountain. We see them mining. We see them foraging. They got beards. They don't have women. Classic dwarves. <laughs> oh, God. Some of them have beards. This is uh, actually kind of a bold, beardless take on a lot of the dwarves. That's right. Yeah. Must have been a fad. Yeah, we'll talk about that. That's right. Uh, I think it's a, a a meta fad of, like, <laughs> just having the short, trimmed beard at the time was really, like, sexy like out of the movie world and so they're like let's have just like a fuckable like kevin <laughs> klein <laughs> that's true keely and thorin are like models that's yeah, right Feely too that's right they're the dwarven dwarves you have like you know big nose big beard you know like scottish accents and then there are the model dwarves which are just like humans <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the implication because of this being a prequel seems to me that the hobbit takes place in a generation where dwarves were very uh expressive and maybe more progressive in terms of their attire and appearance they were a little bit more willing to experiment with looks and everything and then by the time we get to the lord of the rings movie there's this conservative kind of backlash against that and all of the dwarves have gone back to a really traditional model of like everyone has long hair long beard braided traditional dwarven armor and there's like no connection between the two stylistic movements so there could be um a thematical like story context we could say for uh this fat beardless fad or short beard fad that the younger dwarves in the company have? Yeah, we're saying beardless by dwarven standards. Like, Thorin has, like, a full man's beard, but by a dwarven standard, that is basically completely bald. <laughs> yeah. It's a woman's beard. <laughs> yeah. Oh, maybe that's kind of interesting, actually. Uh, maybe some of them are trans. So. Yeah. Could be. Uh, you don't get to know them well enough to know the answers to these questions. Yeah, but so my point is that so they are a diaspora. That's right. They're refugees. Or diaspora, however you might say it. Um, they're refugees from their home mountain. What's it called again? Erebor. They were pushed out by a mean old huge dragon. I hate when that happens. Named Smaug. That's right. And um, Smaug. They had to run away to survive. And they have been surviving by... Doing odd jobs and kind of forging in different human settlements. <laughs> and applying a trade. You know, being as such, maybe they had to change their look to fit in with human society a little bit more easily. Okay, okay. So they're a little bit less bound by tradition out of the need to fit in. Mm. That's right. Now, one way to look at the dwarves is by comparing them to the other fantasy race we see a lot of. Not the hobbits, but the elves. Humans. Oh. They're rivals. No. Humans actually exist in real life. Uh, you will have to do a little bit of convincing, but we can talk about this later. No, we'll cross, we'll burn that bridge later. Yeah. But uh, elves. Yes. Where elves are shown as being very spiritual. They focus heavily on nature. Yes. 
they focus heavily on magic, I suppose, which is also part of nature. Nature and spirituality go hand in hand in this universe. I would say, like, book learning is like an elven quality in Lord of the Rings. Exactly. And uh, dwarves are very much supposed to be an opposite. Right. Oral tradition, storytelling. That's true. Elves I, I, elves, I think, are supposed to be good at change, adapting, whereas dwarves are very not adaptable. Ironic, because... Two of the elves that feature in this series of films are literally just characters from Lord of the Rings also, Legolas and Elrond, who have not changed. Uh, right. That's right. We don't get Legolas in this movie. Dwarves being a people that are miners means that they have resources that others desire, and uh, part of their old alliance with the elves was centered around that. Arms dealing. But also sharing resources. Yeah. And that's one thing that I think is in stark contrast. The dwarves are very of the world. Mm -hmm. Whereas the elves are sort of spiritual and they aren't tied so tightly to like material goods. It True. seems like dwarves are all about like, how much can I accumulate? How my craft, how much can I like, put the, my labors into the world? Like, how much can I create and how much can I accumulate also? Yeah. Right. Because dwarves can suffer from something called gold sickness, right? I hate this. Yeah. That's in on. the third movie, but yeah, we can talk it's about it. It's in the third movie, but it's something that dwarves have favorite. in this lore. All right. Well, just looking at this movie, Thorin's dad was the king, and he was, like, come drunk on gold. Right? <laughs> That's true. You're right. They did mention it. I forgot. You're totally right, Jack. <laughs> yeah. They kept, they kept talking about how he accumulates more, more and more gold. He's just, he's greedy for it, lapping yes. it up greedily. So he's like a CEO. Yeah. Slurp, slurp. He's lapping up gold. That's right. That golden cum. Gold in his mouth, gold on his chair. <laughs> gold on his chin. <laughs> That's right. Gold on, Yeah. And uh, so they they find this beautiful stone he, that's like, uh, just, it glows. So they find like a plutonium chunk or whatever. <laughs> He's like, let's put that right above my head, right? Yeah. You think dwarves have high constitution scores. Exactly. It's shiny. It's going to make me look more prestigious. <laughs> Radiation poisoning later on. I don't think throughout the three movies, well, at least not in the first movie, we don't learn any magical properties of this stone. It's just glowing, right? Uh, I, I think it comes back again. It has a name. I just can't Arkenstone. Yeah, the Arkenstone. Thank you. That's right. That's a pretty funny name. Uh, well, it glows. And that's pretty much why it is valued. Look at the shiny thing. And so, you know who else values it and is greedy? Smaug. Yeah. That's right. And he's a dragon. Yeah. Oh. Smaug comes in and he just kills everybody. <laughs> <laughs> right? But he's like, I've actually got all the power in this scenario. Yeah. And the dwarves are already weakened by a war with the orcs. Right. The orc wars. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. I don't think we got to hear what the Arkenstone does besides glow, but it is magical in some way. Somehow. But all of this is to say 
the dwarves in this movie are very much, they are people who have been ousted from their home, but the dwarves are a traditional people with a strong identity, nationalism, right? Yes, true. And so they are trying to get back to the mountain to make the dwarves great again, right? Oh, boy. (laughs) Let me tell you, there are other dwarves that did not live in this mountain. Yes. And yes. Thorin asked them for help, and the other dwarves said no. And Thorin values the group that he has put together because they are, in his mind, loyal. Yeah. Now, there's something to look at here. When the other dwarves say, sorry, we're not going to help you retake that mountain, there are a few reasons that could be. The first reason, which is to, you know, everyone's reasonable credit there's a dragon inside the mountain right? yeah fuck that shit you move into a different mountain this one's got a dragon problem yeah that's exactly what people told thorin right you're the king of nothing right there's a dragon in that place i'm thinking of the king from holy grail who built his castle on the swamp <laughs> the first one hilarious. fell down <laughs> the second one burned down Third one. Sunk into the fog. Set on fire, sunk into the bog. Fourth one stayed. <laughs> stayed up. That's right. But um I can't I can't help but think of it like a like a holy land metaphor. Yes. They're like Zionists. Right? They're like, we are not really ourselves unless we have that mountain. We are that place. Without that mountain, we are nothing. We have no identity. We aren't even a people. That tracks with the way a lot of human cultures throughout history have operated. <laughs> Usually cultures are tied to a specific place, and that's part of what helps give people a sense of belonging and like group identity. That's right. And other dwarves in this setting, they did not show up to help. Another reason that could be is because not all the dwarves live in a mountain. Some live in hills. That's right. Mm-hmm. Culturally, they could be like, yeah, there were a lot of problems with that mountain kingdom you lived in. You had a greedy as shit king. Yeah, right? your, your dad went all crazy and started thinking only about accumulating more wealth. And then he had like so much wealth that he lost his mind. And this is totally not a metaphor for anything that's happened in real life with wealthy people doing increasingly extravagant and problematic things. Yeah. So I'm just saying maybe the maybe more dwarves didn't come to help because the mountain isn't worth rebuilding. Because perhaps culturally the other dwarves saw a lot of issues with the dwarves of Erebor. Possibly. I mean, I really think that the dragon thing is going to be your main obstacle to getting help. But there's also something that, to what Jack is saying, Maybe culturally it's considered like the Arkenstone is cursed and anybody doors are just a bunch of dicks. Anybody trying to reclaim it would just be inviting that curse back and maybe it would spread to other dwarves. Or maybe you get eaten by a dragon. Yeah, that too. Or that too. And another thing is Gandalf is leading this journey with these dwarves. Thorin is the king of this mountain, but the leader is Gandalf. That's right. Of the adventuring party. And uh, Gandalf is not going out with the intention of rebuilding the Dwarven Empire. He just wants to kill the dragon. In the movie, yeah. 
In the movie, he's just like, that dragon is a problem. The enemies of the world, which are seemingly returning, could use that dragon as a horrible thing against the powers of goodness. True. We need to remove Smaug from the equation. Someone should do something about him. Yeah, he knows that if the forces of darkness were like, hey, we've got a bunch of gold we can give this dragon, like, all of a sudden, dragon army. And by a dragon army, I mean one dragon who can take out an entire army. And here's one of the things, right? Uh, I've seen, I saw someone recently talking about how monsters in fantasy oftentimes the way they can most interestingly be thought of is like not as the virtues, but as like the opposite of virtues that are manifested in the world. Right. So Smaug would be like greed, just Mm -hmm. sheer greed, willing to go to great violence just for gold. Smaug just sleeps on the gold. That's it. (laughs) Right. Right. So we're talking about like Buffy the Vampire Slayer monster as metaphor type stuff. Monster is metaphor. Okay. And this was based on a kid's book, so that does make a lot of sense. Of course. I mean, it makes sense anyway. (laughs) So, and we've been talking about how greed is something that really affects the dwarves. That's why I think it's really ironic that a dragon comes and wipes them all out. An entity that is, like, sheerly driven by greed, because it's sort of like, it's really kind of a metaphor of, like, self-destruction, even though it's an outward force, it's sort of like you you got your ass kicked by something that you yourself, like, experience. It's an ironic punishment is what I'm hearing. Yes, that's or it. Or an appropriate punishment. Yeah. That's interesting. So here's where I think that, you know, this, this idea works really well at this scale, right? With yeah. the dragon. Like, dragon, fantastical monster, appears in mythologies and everything. Not a lot of, like, easy one-to-one corollaries to cultures. Because, like, it's, like, one big powerful thing. Where we start to come into the problem that we've talked about in previous Lord of the Rings movies is when you have a group, an entire culture, that is demonized so heavily as, like, the orcs and goblins are in this movie. Because then it seems like, what ethnic stereotypes are we playing on here? I like the monster, the dragon, who is a single individual who represents something, who can't then be necessarily placed on like, oh, well, Smog is clearly representing this group. Yeah. Yeah. Smog is representing an individual's single lust for excess and accumulation. Yeah, and personified in a being with, you know, just no comprehensible human correlation. Yeah, except for Benedict Cumberbatch. Well, yeah. I was say. <laughs> but hey, guys, do you know who isn't greedy? Who? I've never heard of anybody, so I'm looking forward to this answer. <laughs> Our patrons. <laughs> That's true. That's right. They selflessly give money to us every month through donations on our Patreon. They want to help keep the show going, um, which you could do if you have the means by going to patreon.com slash swords and satire. You could join our patron community and get cool perks too. That's right. You can get outtakes. You can get rewriting history where we pitch a movie based on 
rewriting a sequel, reboot, spinoff, or crossover from a movie we've talked about previously. That's right. And occasionally we get some pretty fun official swords and satire art. Sometimes we have ducks migrating in. Sometimes we have wacky movie posters. And there are always memes to be had. I'm imagining a Smaug dragon duck. Oh. We can make that happen. And you can vote on a movie we will watch each month. So we would really appreciate your support in this way if you have the means. And again, if you go to patreon.com slash swords and satire, that's how you can support our show and join our patron community. That's right. We really want to expand our audience in 2023. And the best way to help make that happen is to support our show. But hey, why don't we talk more about smog? Yeah, so I think it works really well in this movie where Smaug is this kind of foil to the dwarves. That being said, the personification of dwarves as a greedy, wealth-obsessed culture is a bit more troubling. Yeah, I was thinking it. Now, obviously, to some extent, we're going back to Tolkien here, who was building on... Norse mythology, Germanic storytelling traditions, ancient stories about nature entities, right? Like the dwarves that he was imagining were like fairy people from German folklore. In fact, the names of the dwarves and Gandalf's name, which is like Gandalf, Mm -hmm. were these elves like dark elves which we often think of as dwarves not like drow from D&D like the dark elves of Norse mythology were basically what we think of as dwarves today anybody mm-hmm. who's playing the god of war games will be familiar with the dwarves of Svartalfheim I was going to yes. say I was pretty sure they were from Svartalfheim which yeah. has elf in the name yeah <laughs> so elf was like a generic term for like nature spirit Mm-hmm. And Tolkien was using Germanic stories to build this entire world. Yeah. Like everything from all of the set pieces from The Hobbit are developed from Norse and Germanic myths, including all the names of the dwarves and Gandalf in this story. Right. That's right. Uh, we don't get a lot of diversity in dwarven Like, personality, I suppose, in temperament, yes. But what I mean to say is, their culture is being shown as every dwarf effectively has the same motivations and drives, from the king down to, like, the miners. Everyone wants the same things. They Their idea of, like, the dwarven dream is the same between all of them. Like, what do I want in life? It all looks identical. Well, and the humorous thing is like, though, part of that one thing is they all want Thorin to be king. Yeah. They well, basically elected him king. Yeah. And um, this is kind of going back a little bit to what you were talking about with mythology. This is also based on Arthurian legends. And you can see that in The Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings, more so in The Lord of the Rings. But in The Hobbit, you have this company of dwarves that are kind of like the Knights of the Round Table. True. And Thorin is kind of like Arthur. Dwarf Arthur. 
Yes. So like legendary king, the appointed king that they all follow, and they're like honor bound to follow him. The rightful ruler who everyone agrees is the best boy for doing the job. And Arthurian knights are uh, kind of known for like honor and loyalty. And that's what the dwarves value as well. And kind of cleansing the lands of an evil uh, is a theme from the Arthurian legends as well. Right. Good call. Yeah. So that's part of it. And that's kind of why they follow Thorin, because they see him as this like noble king and a warrior who's worthy of their loyalty. I think it's uh, it's interesting that they believe in hereditary leadership to some extent because, like again, like Thorin has lost the kingship, but his father was was king, and they're like, well, his father was king, but like also he's really earned it. His grandfather was also the king, but then later on we're gonna find out, yeah, like this idea that like you're not bound by the mistakes of your parents. But then Thorin is also going to suffer from gold sickness later. So it's like, well, are you telling us that traits are inherited or traits are not inherited? Yeah. Also, the dated quality of this story kind of shows itself because, I mean, like we were saying before, all the characters are male. And um, with what we're talking about, lineage... It's always passed down from, like, father to son. And like in the previous Lord of the Rings movie, like, there are no visible female dwarves in this entire film. That we can tell, at least. I guess Gimli does say in those movies that the beards really make it hard to distinguish from us people. Yeah, there we get no female dwarves present. And pretty much the only female character we get represented in this film is Guinevere. Galadriel. Galadriel. She is shown as like an exception to everyone else. Look at this radiant, elegant, elven like goddess. She's a Mary Sue. You called it though. She is kind of like Guinevere in that way. (laughs) Yeah. She is shown as flawless. Yeah. The romantic ideal in terms of like literary idea of romance. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Also, like, nightly courting. Like, she's the ideal woman. Yeah. And so the only woman they include in the movie is, like, an archetypally perfect, flawless woman. Yeah. And that's not great. It's, like, just above having no women. (laughs) (laughs) There's two types of women. There are perfect goddesses, and then there is nothing. Yes. Like, what? Actually, that means there's only one type of woman. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody else is not worthy of the film, I guess. I mean, they will, um, I will say, like, with a humongous asterisk, remedy this in the next movie when they introduce Tariel, but we're not there yet. We're not there quite yet. We're a year away from that. That's right. So I think we can have it be suffice to say that female representation in the Middle-Earth series is not great. Yeah. No, no. Uh, I don't think in Lord of the Rings either. 
That's right. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to talk more about Thorin real quick, because there's a lot going on with his character, more than maybe every other character. He is, like I said, he feels like a Zionist, right? His entire personality is, let's go reclaim that mountain. So, Jack, uh, what is a Zionist, if you don't mind explaining that? So, I don't have the exact definition, but effectively it is referring to Jews or Christians who really idealize Israel as the Holy Land and really tie the identity of being, like, divinely a chosen group of people to that location. Right. And that, like, that is the sacred holy land. Okay. That is very similar to the mentality that Thorin has here. This is his birthright. This is the home of his people. And he feels the responsibility as, like, a king and someone from the mountain that we, it is his responsibility to save his people by reclaiming their ancestral home. Okay, yeah, I can see that. You know, it's different than, like, an entitlement of king thing, right? Because he is trying to prove himself worthy of reclaim, of of ruling his homeland by reclaiming it from a violent force. Yeah, I think it, it comes from a place of duty and a place of, like, he holds it sacred. He really values land. The land matters more than the, like, individuals. Okay. Like, the culture doesn't exist if the land isn't a part of it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he I, Thorin is basically coming from the perspective that all the dwarves that used to live in the mountain uh, are lost. They are all lost people wandering far from home. And he wants to restore that. And uh, so when he asks the other dwarven kingdoms for help, they do not help. Right. And only these, what is it? How many dwarves are there? Uh, There are 11 dwarves total. 11 dwarves. And yeah. Okay. So there's 12 of them in total? No. Including Uh, Thorn? It's 10... It's Thorin? No, it's Gandalf, Bilbo, Thorin, and Ten Dwarves. They they are hiring Bilbo as their burglar because 13 is an auspicious number in Dwarven culture. Okay. For going on an adventure specifically. Right. So the dwarves that come to Thorin's rescue, quote-unquote, because Thorin is helpless without the assistance of a group. Right? He cannot kill this dragon on his own. No, he ain't soloing it the way Gandalf is going to do in a few years against the Balrog. Can't wait for that. Yeah. Uh, But that's why, like we were saying earlier, he is deeply moved by what he perceives as the loyalty to himself in this cause that he's gathered them for. He says, when no one else came, you all did. So he really values people who are willing to help him out in this that's right that is not consistent throughout the entire film necessarily true he has a very dwarven centric value system 
That's right. Um, anybody who does not live up to his standards of honor and like participation is, in his mind, less than. Gandalf kind of gets a special exception because Gandalf has assisted and is a wizard and has done all this stuff, but Thorin doesn't really have a very good opinion of Bilbo. No. Uh, this comes from when the dwarves were at war with the orcs. They the dwarves were handily losing, and the el an elven army showed up to help, and then decided at the last moment, nah, fuck it, nah, we don't we don't want to deal with that. Yeah, Thranduil didn't really want to just like throw a bunch of elves at a dragon and probably have everybody get you know killed by fire breath. So that's right. And it wasn't all elves, but then Thorin kind of blamed all elves for what that king did. He's not a big fan of men either. Yeah. Hashtag racism. Uh, <laughs> no one came to the dwarves' aid, and so he blames the entire world just walking around with this grudge like a dwarf. <laughs> and yep, uh, he's stubborn. <laughs> yeah, he's stubborn. He holds grudges for hundreds of years? Decades? You yeah. Know? And so Bilbo is a hobbit? Hobbits had nothing to do with this, but like the second Bilbo says from the get go, he's like, "Hey, I do not have the skill set you are hiring me for." <laughs> but Gandalf assures him that he does. Yeah, and so Bilbo is—he's shown a few times that he, a like, is traveling with them, that he's useful. But there's a turning point in the movie where Thorin starts being really unfair to Bilbo. Yes. And starts being like, you never cared about this mission, which it's, he has no investments in this mission, except for, like, this is charity on Bilbo's part, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And so Thorin, back in the day, he really wanted the elves to help. And they didn't. They turned their back on him. And now Bilbo is here helping Thorin when he doesn't have to. And Thorin is only looking at ways that he is being turned on again. Much like a millennial, <laughs> Bilbo is just there for the experience. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't have any skin in the game other than that, except for his own skin, which he's literally risking by coming. And he's hesitant at first because it's super dangerous and the contract is like, Hey, you might get fucking murdered. That's right. It's only when Bilbo, like, miraculously reappears to the group right after Thorin was talking mad smack about him that Thorin is like, oh, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't give him such a hard time. And then when they're fighting orcs again, Bilbo throws himself in front of Thorin, who is helpless in order to save him. Let, let's be specific. In the most unrealistic thing that happens in this entire film, oh no, fifty-five pound Bilbo football tackles an orc with a sword. I beg to differ. I think one of the other most unrealistic things is when all of the dwarves and Gandalf are surfing down a cliffside on some scaffolding. Fuck! I hate that part. I hate oh. both of these parts. Let's just forget about Goblin Town if we can. I <laughs> oh, would I love can. to. Um, every single one of these Hobbit movies is plagued by these, like, 
unreality physics that that's a good name for them yes just are so ridiculous that it makes me just want to scream and turn off the movie. Cass, you cannot <laughs> convince me that barrels don't behave the way they do in movie two. <laughs> Everybody You're who's saying... seen movie two is cringing. So oh, hard dude! Right now. And then the third movie when Legolas is just jumping on the stones that are falling down—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's just rough. It's very rough. You're saying that. The cast of these films is blessed by Anramanyu, the god of unreality from Zoroastrianism. Yeah, maybe I think yes. so. Yeah, uh, the physics in these movies makes me ill. Um, the original movies, for the most part, are so grounded in reality in terms of the physics, right? Like, there's a few things Legolas like, skateboards a shield down a hill. Mm-hmm. He, like, does that weird, awkward, like, roll up on a... Horse. On a horse, yeah. Like, it's always about Legolas, though. Legolas is the one who, like, defies physics. You're like, okay, he's an elf. He's, like, in the books, he's really acrobatic. He can walk on top of snow. Like, that other people are, like, you know, waist deep in. So maybe just elves have a little bit of, like, natural, magical lightness. But... No, this is just insane. Yeah. And so when Bilbo (laughs) saves Thorin's life, Thorin basically is like, I'm so sorry that I have misjudged you so strongly from the start. Didn't give you a chance. You're here to help us. And that means something. And that, that is returning back to the earlier part of the film. It felt really like you were saying, Jamie, contrived. Like yes. they were just trying to add conflict. Uh, they're trying to add conflict and also give the first movie like an emotional arc between these characters that will get completely thrown out in the next movie. Really? Dang. Yeah. yeah like it, it will go nowhere. And in fact, I believe it will be like reversed. But for this movie, like you're saying, Jack, at the end, Thorin does accept Bilbo. And says that he was wrong about him. That's right. Also, Thorin is such an such an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Why specifically? Like, when those or the orcs had pushed them onto a tree, these trees are made of matchsticks. They are equally fragile as matchsticks and just as flammable. And the tree that all the dwarves were in is dangling <laughs> off a cliff now. <laughs> I don't know why the dwarves ran to the cliff with no exit to get away from the orcs in the first place. So. Yeah. Also, for dwarves that are really about fighting a dragon, they are scared to fight some orcs on big dogs. Well, interesting you mentioned that. <laughs> Thorin points out that the dwarves are mostly not fighters at the beginning. Yeah, but they've all set out to be violent dwarves. Fair enough. <laughs> Like, it just feels like their expectations versus, like, the reality don't line up really well. Do you think their plan was to, like, let Gandalf deal with the dragon? 1,000%. Gandalf Gandalf has already, in this three-hour movie, shown up out of nowhere twice to save them. This is, like, exactly what happens when... 
like in a video game, you start to rely on like one trick to to do everything, and it's like I'm just not even going to learn how to play the rest of the game because I just found the win button, and for them, the win button is <laughs> let Gandalf save them. Yeah, that's right. Now, Thorin has an arch enemy that is not Smug. Azog, the White Orc. That's right. Or as we will now exclusively refer to him as Azog, the CGI Orc. Yes. Yeah. Because the other orcs are practical effects. They have suits. Azog is the CGI orc. Are they? I feel like the orcs in this movie are all CGI. It was a mixture. It was a mixture. Okay. The goblins are all CGI. The goblins don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> they are CG. They don't match the design of the goblins from the Lord of the Rings movies. And, and they shouldn't. Okay. Um, the goblins and the orcs. Both. But um, the orcs on the wargs in the beginning are CG, (laughs) but um, some of the orcs that, like, interact close up with each other or with the leader, the albino guy, okay. um, The CGI orc. Yeah, they are practical. They are. Like Jack is saying. And some of the orcs in the fight but some of the other orcs in the fight on the cliff are cg as well it's it's a confusing mixture there was no plan (laughs) visually the fight scenes in this movie of which there are far too many for a book that basically like eschewed most combat and action sequences um is such a mess that it all just becomes a blur to me, and I can't tell what's CGI and what's real. I know. Just like there were there there were good themes in this, like grudges versus like the breaking of prejudices, the yeah. idea of like 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 they do in Thor Ragnarok, like Asgard is a people, not a place. That sort of is a plot thread in this. Uh. Like the idea of leaving your comfortable life that to like do something exciting. Like there are so many interesting things in this movie, but then there's Goblin Town. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's go down to Goblin Town to close this bad boy out. Because it's an important scene. Yeah. It's not only where we get to meet the Goblin King. I see Jack's face. They're like, is it? (laughs) But it's also the intermix with the scene where Bilbo gets a magical MacGuffin that is very important to the future of this franchise. That's true. Or to the past of this franchise. (laughs) Whatever. The future past. That's right. While the gang is talking to... Like a, a living migraine. Um, <laughs> he does kind of look like a tumor. He's got a nutsack on his chin. Okay, the goblins. <laughs> just to tell the listeners. I like when we were joking about that during the movie, and Jackie were like play acting the Goblin King. You were like, I have what on my chin? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's a classic, like, what hump type of moment. Yeah. You're like, I have a mole? Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, the goblins are all CGI. It, okay, let me say this. In the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, there were several recurring orakai mm. that you see throughout the films. Yes. And you recognize them. Yes. And they are practical effects. You're like, they look real. 
They yeah. look real and they are substantial. They have physics and they are like, you believe that they are there and you recognize them as people. Because yeah. they're big stuntmen in badass costumes and Exactly. They are people, right? Yeah. You believe it. The CGI of the goblins in this movie is so forgettable. The only thing you don't forget is that their their king is a giant ugly bastard with a testicle chin. (laughs) A scrotum chin. I can actively remember Grishnak from The Return of the King. And if you asked me to describe one goblin that wasn't the Goblin King in this film... I could not do it with a gun to my head. I even know who you're talking about. Krishnak. Yeah. 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 The the goblins and orcs in the Lord of the Rings films are amazing makeup and human beings in suits that did a wonderful job. And what they did in Goblin Town is a blasphemy against... A brilliant original series of films. Dude, I can perfectly picture the leader of the Urukai in my head right now. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so the goblins, it feels like there are no stakes. Because while the dwarves are all being threatened, it it is a filler episode. Because this yeah. movie is longer than it's supposed to be. It's just like we know that nothing bad is going to happen to the dwarves. The dwarves use wacky antics to get away, but, like, a little too wacky for this situation. Because they're, like, using a ladder to, like, drop it over the heads of the goblins and make them run backwards off a cliff. There's a guy just swinging a piece of wood. Just a piece of wood, swinging it around his head. He's hitting, like, (laughs) three goblins at a time, every rotation. Just (laughs) helicoptering. Knocking, like... Just like two dozen goblins off of the... It's like, are they scary at all? Wait, I think that means something else, Jamie. Yeah, he's just helicoptering. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That would have been interesting and memorable. Uh, But yeah, they they surf on scaffolding down a cliff. Yeah. I hate that part more than anything. Because they fall approximately 5,000 feet on a wooden frame, and they're just like, oh, good, the wooden frame didn't collapse when we hit the bottom. It didn't splinter every time we hit a stone, and we were just perfectly balanced. It feels like there's no stakes. Yeah. There aren't any. Because it's a filler episode. That is filler content. Nothing (laughs) progressed the plot. And from a storytelling point of view, like, we know they're going to survive yeah that that doesn't always destroy the stakes in the story i mean well i should say we know they're gonna get to where they're going like spoilers thorin and keely and feely and and some of the dwarves don't survive the end of this series but we know they have to get to the point where they're going to die for plot purposes Yeah. yeah it just felt really unnecessary all of these issues are well they're in part there because this was originally uh, intended and like prepped to be a two film. Guillermo del Toro um, story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was going to direct it. He did 18 months of prep before they were due to film in like uh, December. He left in October. Uh, the whole rhetoric of everybody involved, like including him, Peter Jackson, and like studio execs, was that 
he had other projects that Guillermo had other projects to work on. Which is absolutely asinine. But then if you hear him talking about it later in interviews, he he was like gutted that he didn't get to work on it. He really wanted to do it. And it really sounds more like somebody who was pushed out. Absolutely. So the production of this film just sounds like so soulless. Yeah. We haven't even got like we haven't even covered everything about it because Lindsay Ellis does such an amazing job. Like I, yeah. I would suggest people check that out. But, but yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, so Peter Jackson took over after he left because if nobody was going to take over directing it in New Zealand, the studios were gonna move it to like Eastern Europe. So to keep it in New Zealand, Peter Jackson like came back in. He's the one who suggested Guillermo for the directorial role anyway. Um so he was then basically beholden to the studios, but then he kind of like adopted their rhetoric as well. It's it's tricky. But And then they destroyed the New Zealand film industry for uh, labor rights. Yeah, and so they forced him basically to make it three movies to milk all the money out of it. And then um it just got bloated from there, and they had to fill out three films in what was designed to be two, and they only had two months before filming was going to start to try to make something happen, and they basically threw out all of that 18 months of prep work. So they were always playing catch-up during the whole production. Just to put the scope of this movie in the context for the listener who might not be the gigantic Lotor nerd that I am. <laughs> the first Lord of the Rings movies, the Lord of the Rings films by Peter Jackson adapt about 900 to a thousand pages, I think, or maybe 1200 pages of content into approximately nine hours or like 11 hours, I guess, if you count extended cuts. Yeah. The Hobbit is like a 250-page book for kids, and it gets the same, basically, number of movies and screen time as a story that is four or more times longer. Maybe even six. Yeah, maybe even six times longer. So they start pulling in shit like, we need to have Gandalf go off with Galadriel. We need to have a connection between the Necromancer and... Sauron, which, like, Tolkien, like, kind of retconned the necromancer to be Sauron. We need to bring in Legolas and add Tariel and all this shit. And, and the like, love triangle that comes later. <laughs> yeah, and, like, all this bullshit. And, like, I would just want to say all this to get, to inform the listener and then to give props to Vigo Mortensen because they were like, oh, we want to get Aragorn in here. Let's get Vigo. And Vigo said... Aragorn's not in The Hobbit. I'm not doing your fucking movie. <laughs> Which is just so respectable. Yeah. And they still, like, bring his character in in the fucking climax of the last film. Like, they talk about him for no fucking reason. Oh, right. So, yeah, uh, with all that in mind, I think it's probably time for us to head into the smithy. <laughs> Welcome 
Welcome to the Smithy, where we each forge a rating for this movie after we share an epic moment or feature from the film. Jack, do you want to tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating from 1 to 10 stings? Well, there are a few pretty epic moments, I think. I I have a guess as to what Cass's is. But uh, (laughs) I think I'm going to have my epic moment or feature be Thorin Oakenshield, just himself. Because he he's a character that is flawed, but also is pretty cool. I really like that he has this passion. He has a dream, which is pretty cool. And you can see the appreciation he has for the people who work with him. You He has these grudges that, like, are, make as much sense, but are also as irrational as, like, biases that people have in real life. Like, he was betrayed by the elves, and instead of just having a grudge for them, it extends to a lot of people who had nothing to do with that situation. I feel that's kind of realistic. Actually, you're right. He's even blaming hobbits. It's like, yo, we were, like, eating fourth breakfast, hanging out, <laughs> Smoking pipe weed. Leave us the fuck out of your shit. Exactly. But uh, I think it is really good the way they've built his character as someone who has a lot that you can admire and as someone you can be like, that's not cool. And at the end of the day, even with like his flaws, I still like him as a character. And that's really realistic. It's hard to nail that with a character most of the time. Yeah. To give a character real, vibrant, in-your-face flaws and still make them really, like, you are able to see the virtues in them still. Yeah. And, I mean, think about the trauma that he went through. <laughs> yeah. Huge, massive traumas. Many of them. And yeah. now he's just been wandering. Uh, and dwarves are not easily changing people. They're very traditional. They're set in their ways. They're stubborn. When he apologizes to Bilbo, that is a big moment. I did like that. Because for a dwarf to do that, I think, is a meaningful thing. If we're looking at their stereotypical characters. From this franchise. Exactly. Exactly. And so, I wish more characters got the depth that they give to Thorin. But, uh, he, yeah, he's a great character. I think he's epic. Uh, I think for a lot of people, he was one of the epic moments for a lot of people who watch this franchise. He's very memorable, and he's really hot. Yeah. <laughs> that helps. Yeah. And then uh, I guess when it comes to the movie as a whole, it's going to lose some points because it feels um, inappropriate. It, it, all the all the sex scenes are just like, they really take you out of it. No, that would be appropriate. <laughs> um, I obviously the labor stuff. It actively hurt humanity to make this film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in a very greedy way, very few people hurt many people generations to come, probably because they wanted a bigger paycheck. The it, they did like a lot of CGI stuff, which really lowered the quality of the film, made it a lot more forgettable. 
They extended the film to try and be like the first one, which really reduced the quality of the movie. It just felt like this was no soul, give me a paycheck. The exact yes. sort of greed that they are villainizing in the movie made the movie. It's cannibalizing the franchise. That's the right. The real Smaug was the CEOs all along. Yeah. And like, I like the actors in it. They did a mm-hmm. great job. Tolkien is a great world builder. So like, there is something to admire about it. Yeah. It's just a shame that like the corruption of Sauron tainted this movie. <laughs> yes. And the trilogy, but you know, there are things to admire. Which I is think why that's the, fair. this first movie did not suck ass. And I hope it is done better in the future. And uh so I'm probably going to give this movie Four out of ten stings. I've seen it more than once. Apologies. No, it's pretty good. (laughs) I'm probably going to see it one or two more times. And uh, it's okay. It's pretty good. I just wish they did not go about it in this method. But it can be a fun watch. So four out of ten stings. You did it to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's fair. How about you, Cass? You want to give us your epic moment or feature and then a rating from 1 to 10 stings? I do. I'm pretty sure Jack knows what I'm going to do. Oh, Um, yeah. My epic feature is the character Radagast. Yes. Yeah, that was it. Mm Mm-hmm. He's red, and I'm not aghast. He even has poop on him. Um... Automatically the best character in any film. Yeah. Yes. He's a true satirist. Um <laughs> One of us. One of us. Yes. Everything except for the weed smoking. Yeah. Yes. Um I just I love how he's his own person. He doesn't care what other people think. I look up to that. He has these things that he cares about. He he takes care of the forest. He's a healer. Um, he's like a steward of the land. And he takes care of all the woodland creatures. And they're his friends. And I yes. love how he cares about other living beings besides humanoids. Yeah. Him, him and Gandalf are, <clears throat> I think, similar in that way. A lot of ways. Yeah. Um... But Radagast actually talks to other animals and is, like, friends with them. I, I, I agree with what you're saying. I also think that one of the best parts about Radagast is that, you know, Saruman is, like, their boss. He's, like, the, the boss of the wizards. And he <laughs> fucking hates Radagast. But I guess he can't fire him. So I guess Radagast <laughs> is, like, a union man or something. So I'm, yeah. like, badass. Like, I love that. It just means he leaves Radagast alone for the most part, which is kind yeah. of based. I was going to say, it's awesome. <laughs> Radagast got the perfect gig. I know. So the scene that was probably the most important to me of the film was when Radagast sees that his forest is becoming cursed by a malevolent energy and it's killing off. It's the necromancer. Yeah. It's killing off his animal and plant friends. And he's distressed. And so am I. And I'm right there (laughs) with him. So distressed during this scene. And he, Saw Sebastian, 
the hedgehog was dying and I was freaking out. You really were. I was yelling. You I was screaming. The hedgehog was all you cared about. I was he like, was don't sick. you. Yeah. I was like, don't you fucking kill him. I couldn't remember what happened to Sebastian. <laughs> I was experiencing it like I was for the first time. Because the first time, two times we saw this movie have fallen out of your brain. I guess so. Justifiably. <laughs> and so I was like, don't you fucking do it. You better not. We're going to turn off the movie if he dies. And I was just invested right away. I mean, he had a name, Sebastian. And Radagast was like, no, hang on. And (laughs) when he has him in his house and there's other hedgehogs like crowding in. His family. Yeah, Sebastian's family to see how he's doing. Radagast is like, step back, give him some air. (laughs) (laughs) And he like is doing all these different healing (laughs) modalities on him. and then. he realizes that it's a curse and he gets a magic stone and like chance and uh, draws the curse out of Sebastian and he lives. And that was like the best moment. That was such like a roller coaster. And I was like, that's the whole arc of a story right there. I, I, I got it. I, I, I had the catharsis at the end. Everything. Okay. I need to tell oh, yeah. you guys something. I just yeah. looked up Sebastian's entry on the Hobbit Lord of the Rings wiki on fandom. And yes. you have to, and Sebastian has his own entry. That's amazing. Let's hear it. Sebastian is a character in The Hobbit. He was an extremely cool, chill, <laughs> and sex driven hedgehog owned by Radagast the Brown. <laughs> Fuck yeah. What? Owned, owned by Radagast? I disagree with that. Fair yeah. enough. I'm pretty sure that Sebastian owns Radagast. Yeah. Cool, extremely cool, chill, and sex-driven. I'm pretty sure Sebastian's the dom. So I'm assuming that this is canon to the Tolkien stories. Yeah. Yeah, Sebastian's pretty much the best. Yeah, agreed. And Radagast as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, besides that, the rest of the movie, eh, I don't know. Yeah, I think considering everything, <laughs> I think I'm going to give it a 4 out of 10 Sting. Sting, stings as well. I wanted to do this movie to continue our tradition. A lot of the um, the other movies of The Lord of the Rings uh, all have common themes, one of which is hope. And I really didn't feel that from this movie. No, even though they try to shove it down your throat. <sighs> And that's one of the reasons why I like doing it at the beginning of the year is because that seems like a hopeful time to me and it seems like a good theme to start the year with, but it just like failed. (laughs) Peter Jackson has stolen your hope from you. Yeah, I think uh, the executive stole it from him as well. If the dead-eyed stare he had in some of those clips we saw (laughs) are any indication. but um. So yeah, I think I'm going to give it a 4 out of 10. Um, Even though I enjoy the movie, and I think it's probably the best one out of the three. Low bar. Um, I think it doesn't deserve a higher score. (laughs) It's hard to quantify this, but um, yeah, for the human rights violations, I think (laughs) it deserves a lower score. I agree. 
What about you, Jamie? What's your epic moment or feature and your rating out of one to 10 stings? Yeah, tell us, Jamie. I was going to say, not to mention the human rights violations of the audience having to watch it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) My epic moment, it's kind of an extended moment, but like, it's kind of like just the opening of this movie. I mean, including the backstory part, I felt like the backstory part actually worked. It does add something. It adds something. It establishes the world. It reconnects you to the world building of the original trilogy it tells you a story and then we get this introduction with bilbo and gandalf gandalf is spinning lines from the book that are really fun and you're getting this feeling of like okay maybe this is gonna be a fun whimsical thing and then the dwarves show up and it's kind of quirky and like the designs of the dwarves are not perfect there's one dwarf that has like an axe head stuck in his skull uh, and like it's kind of like, funny the whole design of the dwarves is just kind of like I actually would have liked them to be a little bit more if you're going to give them these kind of wacky personalities do something with it and if you're not just kind of let them be a hodgepodge of side characters Yeah, because they never get room to grow Like, the Lord of the Rings was already a big ask to have nine distinct characters that are, like, just the Fellowship. And then all the important side characters, Elrond, Arwen, Galadriel later on, like, Eowyn. No, no, sorry, Eowyn later on, Arwen, uh, Eomir, like, all these characters. And they feel really distinct. And this movie fails that in so many ways because we never really get moments with these dwarves. If you're not Thorin or eventually Keely, you're kind of just relegated to this weird side area. And like early on in the movie, you're kind of getting a little bit of their personalities. You're getting conversations with them between like Bilbo and stuff and and some of the dwarves. And then like all the way up to them getting ready to leave the Misty Mountain song. Like by the time it hits that, I'm like, Oh my God this is going to be an amazing movie. Like any of my little quibbles aside that primes me. And then after that, it is just abject disappointment. Yeah. Like it is moments that could be good. And they're just stripped of all personality because they're rendered in CGI. They're trying to do like connections to the Lord of the Rings that don't need to be there because that shit hasn't even happened yet. Like, the events of the Lord of the Rings take place, like, 50 years later or more, even. Like, you don't need to be setting these seeds in the same way. The Necromancer is not supposed to be this big threat that everyone knows is going to be bad. It's supposed to be this, like, little evil that's a side mission for Gandalf. And then later on, he will make the connection. Yeah, I could see your point. I, I didn't mind some of those additions, but... Honestly, uh, having the necromancer like be like just alluded to, he might be controlled and empowered by Sauron could be interesting. Like about how men are still being corrupted by him. Yeah, something. But I mean, there's just like I feel like a few of these little things could have worked, but taken as a whole, it just ends up padding out this movie. I saw the three-hour runtime, and I was just like, why? 
And like I was almost considering doing the extended cuts, and we didn't do those for the originals. I was like, oh, maybe it's like two hours. Like, no, the extended cut is like three and a half hours. I'm like, no fucking way. No. We already did this one in two parts. <laughs> this regular version, theatrical version. Oh, yeah, that's right. We watched, we watched it, it in two sittings. Yeah, which kind of worked. But it kind of worked on the one hand, and it was a detriment on the other because that first hour and a half is so filled with promise. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, it is right about then when they leave Rivendell that everything falls apart. Yeah. Like, You're exactly works. right. You're exactly right. It's true, because then there's the stupid giant scene, and then the goblins and all there's, that. There's so much wrong after that part. But, but like, yeah, <laughs> the part in the Shire sets you up for a lot of fun, and then it just ends up being disappointment after disappointment. And I know it only gets worse as we go from here. So I'm not looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to talking with you guys about the later movies, but it's so hard to not talk about this movie with them. The ghost of those films hanging over me. All that being said, if it was just the movie, I would have given this, I was actually already thinking before you guys started giving your ratings four out of 10 stings, but because <laughs> of what the studio did to the actors and the damage this film did to actors rights in new zealand i'm gonna give this movie zero out of ten swords stings fuck this this movie did actual harm to real people like, i've joked yeah. about that in the past but this is legitimately like they changed laws yeah warner brothers studio execs met with the uh new zealand uh government officials and Got them to change the laws of their sovereign nation yeah. <laughs> to fit their corporate agenda. Yeah. So because of that, zero out of ten stings. Uh, huge disappointment. If you're going to watch this movie, definitely pirate it. Oh, I mean, uh, if you're going to watch this movie, like, don't pay for it. Let's just say yar har. <laughs> yeah, whatever works. Like, just don't do it because don't support the creation of movies like this. Yeah, I'll probably rate this movie 31 silver denariuses out of 10. <laughs> and just for the record, uh, the new uh, Avatar movie, I think, was also filmed in New Zealand, so I'm not going to see that either because of what Peter Jackson and Warner Brothers did to the film industry there. You know, I just hope that choosing money over humanity doesn't satisfy those people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They get a lot of money. I hope the money hurts them and that humanity saves them. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. But, you know, I have a, a question for Cass. Okay. What are we watching next week? Oh, next week we're also continuing another franchise that we started before. Oh, sweet Jesus. Uh, it's the bestie of the writer of the Lord of the Rings. Aha. I know um, what you mean. We're watching The Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. Very cool. I am tentatively excited about this because I have not seen this movie. Yeah, I've never seen it either. I've seen the ending, I think, but I don't oh. remember it. Oh, I've seen it. Well, it's scripture <laughs> for you, right? No, not really. But, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun. I think you. I think we're going to have a good time watching it. Awesome. Nice. But until we do that, Jack, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find out more about our show in the meantime? 
Let me tell you, if you want more art, more episodes, more interaction with us, you can go check out our social media where we have such wacky old memes that we post. You can have a direct community interaction by adding us on a burning platform. (laughs) That bird one. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and... uh, those things in in the hearts of our listeners we hope (laughs) that's right and our handle is at swords and satire that's right so as we mentioned before if you have the means you can support us over there on patreon but uh if you don't have the means and you still want to support the show you can tell your friends and family about it get them to watch the movies with you and then listen to our show together. And then that's one more thing you have to share between you. Shared trauma. And maybe you can start a union and help <laughs> fight for New Zealand labor rights. Or like your own labor rights. Yeah. <laughs> Support unions, people. That's right. And our show. <laughs> and the bonds between all of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. Very important. <laughs> Just support each other. That's really the message of our show. 2023, support our show. (laughs) Support each other. Support yourself. Support our show. Okay. The greatest strength of art is community. That's right. Okay. But until next time, Hail Crumb. Crumb!